is an Odyssey original. This is KNX In-Depth. I'm Rob Archer. I'm Charles Feldman. California and six other states have a tough decision to make right now and not a whole lot of time to do it. They need to come up with plans by tomorrow on water reductions from the Colorado River. And if they can't decide, the feds will decide for us how much water will be cut. So we'll go in depth into the drought and the future of water here in Southern California. You might soon uh, once again be able to find a good deal on a used car. You may remember, uh, Rob, that uh, in the past year or so, People buying used cars, they really, the prices have gone through the roof, literally. And I just had to get a used car, and I paid the through the roof prices, so I'm a little upset now. Yeah, see, if you would have have waited, I know, so we're going to explore that. And uh, former President Trump is now officially campaigning, but is the old magic from 2016 gone? Studies out there about uh, school closures during the pandemic and the impacts they had. New study looks at how much learning was lost. We'll go in depth on whether kids can catch up. And we'll look at the final chapter for a big and popular commercial airline jet that's made the skies much more friendly. We start with the Colorado River and water cuts. Felicia Marcus is a fellow at Stanford University's Water in the West program and former chair of the California State Water Resources Control Board under Governor Brown. Thanks for being back with us. Appreciate it. Oh, happy to be here. So uh, just a a couple of of sort of facts to get out of the way. The Colorado River, uh, like most of this area, has been the victim of a prolonged drought, right? It uh, hasn't dried up, but it's on the way to drying up. We get our water, along with six other states, right? And Mexico, too, parts of Mexico, from it. Why is there a critical time coming about now of all times? Well, it's we're at the end of a, a long drawn out 23 year drought where folks could see the reservoirs going down to the point where now they're lower than they've been uh, at any time since they were filled um, with folks trying successfully in the short run to come up with agreements on how to forestall this day, but we're kind of at the end of that road. And so the federal government now is saying, hey, there's just not, you can talk all you want. There's just no water there. And we're at the point where we're at risk of what's known as Deadpool, where you can't get any more out from the usual outlets. And you certainly can't produce hydropower and it could actually damage the facilities in addition to uh, leading to much more disruption of both electricity and water for Uh, the whole Southwest. Seems like we're uh, in between a rock and a dry place uh, right Mm -hmm. now. And and the situation with the river is not going to get better anytime soon. So what are our options down the road? Well, the options are are what, uh, there's two ways of looking at it. In the objective side, uh, we've got to conserve more. We've got to recycle more. We've got to capture flows when it's wet, including off our city streets. Uh, we've got to re, you know, contour, uh, the land so that we capture more of it. There's a, a lot in the Southland that's already going on. That's sort of, uh, I think it, um, has plans that, uh, will be, uh, world leaders in, adaptation to climate in a in a water scarce region but they're going to take some time to bear fruit and so in the short run in urban california we're going to have to figure out probably how to lose the lawns a little faster how to transition uh, because that's our largest single use of water in the urban context plug up our leaks 
uh, and then capture more stormwater, which in uh, at least in the L.A. County area, the voters approved a, a process that will give $300 million a year to do these wonderful multi-benefit projects um, that will capture water and sink it into the ground uh, and get flood control and water pollution benefits. And then you have the two largest water recycling projects in the world in process with both the Metropolitan Water District and County San project and then the city of LA's uh, project. Those will take 10 years or so to start bearing fruit. So conservation first and then uh, innovation second. Agriculture will end up having to shrink considerably they well that's not going to yeah but that's not going to and you know this that is not going to go over big with uh, the people who are in agriculture they use as you know an awful lot of water uh, to produce what they do produce to feed mm-hmm. the country and right. they are not going to very willingly accept uh, cutbacks that are going to appreciably affect their business in which case they're going to probably go to court in which case we are probably looking at protracted lawsuits, which also mm-hmm. brings me to the question that once the Fed gets involved and starts saying to these states, here's what you need to do since you cannot agree amongst yourselves what to do, isn't that in and of itself likely to lead to protracted litigation? Well, it can. I mean, it can go one of two ways. And and I am a veteran of having been the Fed on both air and water issues in California in past lives. Um, it, it can do one of two things. Certainly it can lead to litigation, um, ultimately, hopefully successful because someone's got to do something. The federal government tends to be sort of the actor of last resort in a number of statutes where it's the guarantor that someone will step in and do something. In this case, they, they are the managers under federal law of the river and they need to protect the facilities and, and do something. So there'll be litigation. The question is whether it's successful or not. But the other thing that they can do, and I think this is what they're trying to do, is to come on as the, you know, metaphorical 800 pound gorilla to say, okay, folks, we know it's hard for you to agree amongst yourselves. Cause again, no one wants to be disadvantaged. No, as between each other, um, no one wants to be a chump in any kind of a, of a fight like this, it's hard politically to put water on the table and and be a leader in a in a case like this. But if the federal government comes in and puts something on the table, it either can be something that's so ugly that people, <laughs> you know, come together get, to do a better yeah, job. Get, get forced into coming up right. with a better idea. Right. It's like we don't want to have to do this, but we don't want them hmm. to do it. Right. So we're going to make the hard choices or they might just do a good job of kind of reading minds or the things okay. people can't say out loud and right. put together a plan that people say, oh, yeah, OK, yeah, we okay. could do that. Right. All right. Thank you. Uh, Felicia Marcus, a uh, fellow at Stanford University's Water in the West program. You know, she was talking about how the feds would be the 800 pound gorilla. But doesn't an 800 pound gorilla need a lot of water? Yeah, they do. They drink an awful lot and they need some food, too. Right now, though, one of the many things the covid pandemic impacted were used car prices. Demand surged and so did the cost of buying a used car. Deals were hard to come by, but the used car boom is coming to an end with prices dropping rapidly. Rob, you were telling me during the commercial yeah. break about your own thing with a used car. Yeah, I had a I had a lease and yeah. uh, it was it was a car that was new when I when I leased it, but the lease is coming up and so, you know, it was still in the midst of that supply shortage thing and and inventories were very low. So, my choices for getting into another car were very limited. Hmm. And it turned out I could get a used car, but now I feel like I kind of got, you know, uh Screwed on the deal. <laughs> well, uh, maybe uh, our next guest can help you out. Uh, Ivan Drury is senior manager of Insights 
for Edmunds.com. Ivan, thanks for being with us. Hey, thanks for having me, Rob Charles. So, uh, as we just pointed out, it was getting really expensive for a while if you wanted to buy a used car. Now, the prices seem to be coming down. Are they, or is it only on some select models and only certain select places? What, what's going on? No, what you're noticing is correct. Um, we're starting to see a decline, and it's across the board. Um, and really, it goes anything from almost near new, like a one-year-old car, all the way down to something like a nine-year-old car. Even somebody thinks they have a beater that's kind of troughed out, um, it might be getting a little bit lower. So definitely keep your eyes on it. But really, it is the trickle-down effect of having more new cars for sale that are sitting on dealers' lots and are going for less than MSRP. Um, it translates directly into the used market where we saw that shortage last for so long that we'd seen prices just every single month going up. Didn't matter if you drove your car a thousand miles, you know, ten thousand more miles, whatever. The price was going up, but now that we have new cars that are available for sale again, and they're seeing some discounting, it's transcending down onto the used values. And what do you recommend for people who, like me, were uh, had a lease, uh, had a pretty good lease, and then uh, had to get uh, another car? And the only thing they could get because of inventory problems was a used car, but the prices were sky high. So you know they wind up paying more for the used car than they did for that lease. But, but that you they have, had. Wait, but you have buyer's remorse. I have buyer's remorse. <laughs> Nothing wrong with a car. I'm just I have I have uh, I have. Uh, 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 payment remorse. Right. <laughs> You're not alone. I mean, the average car payment for a new car is around 700 a month. Used is looking at six. I mean, interest rates are sky high. A lot of people, if you look over the life of the loan on interest alone on a new car, $10,000 in finance charges. Wait, 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 wait. Roll back like, what you just said. So, said, mm-hmm. did you say that, that the average price uh, for a used car in monthly payments is now $700? Is that what you uh, said? For a new, new car. Yeah. Oh, for a new, new car. Right. Used is not that far behind, though. We're looking at six. Yeah, but six. So. All right. So, that's not much. So, why would you. It doesn't make any sense then, right? I mean, if, you're going, if you can get a used car for six uh, and a new one is seven, why wouldn't you just go for the extra hundred if you can afford it? Well, that's the thing is we're looking at the down payments and the term lengths too, right? So, I mean, there's some other factors involved that when you look at that new car, you know, even like you come to find out your lease expires or your car gets totaled, can you even find what you want in the new car market? We're still not there yet. You know, Hmm. we roughly have about half the inventory in the industry that we're normally accustomed to. It's better than when we were at a quarter when people were desperate and we're paying well over msrp but we're still not there yet and if you look at you know very specific makes and models when you filter down like what are you willing to buy what do you really love you might find out that you're you're looking to dealerships that are only running at like 25 30 percent of their inventory as a customer normal just because it's so hit or miss when it comes to these inventory issues so it's again it's still a problem that's very pervasive throughout the entire industry we're seeing some you know, benefits in new car inventory, but it hasn't gotten to the point where, you know, blowout sales, holiday deals, um, any color, any configuration you want, we're still not there yet. So so if the new cars uh, still aren't there yet, uh, would you say that leases are down as a result that fewer people are leasing and they're going ahead and going for that, uh, f- for the buy and uh, making those big car payments? Yeah, a lot of people, they've kind of had to sit it out on leasing because the OEMs, the automakers themselves, they're not really you know, putting those incentives where you get super cheap leases anymore. 
Um, right now, at least he's running about half the penetration rate that it's accustomed to. Yeah, I got, I, got a super, I got a super cheap lease before, and that's why I was born. Yeah. See, and, and, I, and, <laughs> yeah. and I just got, and I just actually uh, got a new lease on a, on a new car, and I, I thought about buying one, but I just thought, I don't know, I kind of like having new technology every few years. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, but at least you did what was right. If you don't do what's right, if you know yourself well enough to know that it's worth paying that lease payment, even though it's more money per month, because if you didn't, what happens in two or three years? You try to get out of that, you know, that finance deal and mm -hmm. you might be in negative equity, right? So you kind of have to know how your buying habits are. And if you've been in negative equity more than once or twice, then clearly leasing, no matter what the cost, um, is definitely where you should be. I, I am curious, Ivan, do Teslas make good used cars? Um, right now, we definitely – I'd wait to see the prices come down more um, because of the new incentives, the new pricing structure for a lot of the Tesla models and the federal tax credit. We've started to see some effect in the used car market, but you got to remember the dealers that bought those cars two, three weeks ago, last month, they're still sitting on them. And they paid values from when that vehicle is ceiling, that real price that they paid, the maximum they could pay was a lot higher. And you know the – used car ceiling is typically the new car's starting price and we're not there yet you know a lot of dealers are going to have to question how long do i hold on to this tesla um, especially if it's like a a one or two year old vehicle low miles you're competing with that brand new one that just had a twenty thousand dollar haircut mm, yeah. so <laughs> it's very tricky right now all right thank you uh ivan drury senior manager of insights for edmunds.com that's why i think the future horses horses yeah, that's goes, something what, to look into it goes around comes around and you can charge them easily. Absolutely. Former President Trump's formally started campaigning to try to win back the White House next year. He had stops this weekend in New Hampshire and South Carolina, two states that start the primary process. Meg Kennard covers national politics for the Associated Press and was at Mr. Trump's campaign event in South Carolina. Thank you so much for uh, joining us. Uh, I, I did not catch all of the campaign events. I did catch some speeches that he gave to some uh, Republican groups, and it struck me, this is subjective, but it struck me that he was very very low-key, low-energy, almost kind of bored. Was that the sense you got at the uh, actual political rallies? Hey there, it's good to be with you. You know, Trump's campaign has said from the beginning of this effort for 2024 that it's going to look different, that people who are looking for the big rallies that we've seen over the past couple of years, um, we're maybe not going to be seeing that off the top. And that's certainly what we saw reflected in these events in South Carolina, Former President Trump was inside the state house, not at an airplane hangar or at a high school gym or a lot of the other places we've been along previous campaign trails. It was a different vibe. He had a lot of supporters there. He had his leadership team for his South Carolina campaign. But you're right in that there wasn't the same level of energy that we've seen in a lot of these larger events. A lot of excitement, for sure. A lot of people who were there ready to support the former president and hear more about his efforts for this next campaign cycle. But it certainly got a different look. And we'll see if he sticks to that in, in other stops in other states. But that's certainly what we've seen so far. So what is the, as far as you understand it, the purpose of this new look? I mean, if, if nothing else, Mr. Trump has been very good at, at keeping to brand. He knows what his brand is. He knows what his base wants. Why would he want to change his brand now? I don't know that it's a change of brand, but it is a change of, of the way that it's branded. If you'll, if you'll bear with me for just a second, a lot of the messaging is the same. A lot of the 
if people have followed the 2016 campaign and the 2020 campaign, a lot of those same issues are certainly being mentioned in these speeches by the former president. But in terms of the rollout, in terms of what it looks like, from their part, the campaign says that they want to have a show of strength, a show of leadership for the former president to come to South Carolina for his very first event, to be standing there with the current governor who was just reelected to a four-year term, with the lieutenant governor, with several of the Republican members of Congress, Senator Lindsey Graham, other um, notables within GOP circles, to start off his campaign in the pivotal state of South Carolina with all of those people literally standing next to him. Um, you know, a lot of what we're seeing is that the theory behind that is this is a show of strength before anybody else gets in the race. Let's not forget that so far, former President Trump is the only candidate who is seeking his party's nomination, the only one out on the trail actively campaigning. And so to their mind, to go ahead and kick things off before anyone else is in the race with him purportedly could sort of cut off any of, of the other support that other candidates could try to to leech from some of those people. And very quickly, uh, fact checkers had a field day during his uh, his last presidential campaign for uh, 2016 and, uh, of course, through his presidency, too. Uh, in your sense, would you say that uh, he's making more of these types of uh, false claims than he did before? Has he has he ramped up the disinformation, if you will? I'm not sure about that. Um, I do think that there are there's a lot of messaging that is going to sound familiar to some folks who've been paying attention to previous campaigns. But to be certain, a lot of people I've talked to who still avow their support for President Donald Trump in another campaign um, are tired of talking about the 2020 election. He still mentions it. And and that was certainly referenced in some of his his remarks. But you know, I think what we're hearing from his supporters is they're kind of looking for a change of tone and looking forward and not backward. And, and certainly the investigations are ongoing. Fulton County, Georgia is still about to present their grand jury report. Um, there are other investigations that are still ongoing with the Department of Justice as well. So those things are happening in the background, but at least from people on the ground, they're ready to start talking about a different election and not looking backward. Yeah. One of the quotes I read uh, from this weekend, he said, uh, I believe that he was uh, angrier now than before. What is he angry about? His claim that he, he lost the election, which, of course, he did. Or he didn't. His claim that he didn't lose it. It, it sounds like, you know, that that quote has been um, a lot has been played about that and, and looked into that. I think that there the former president is trying to show people that he does have that energy. He's still angry about the course of events in our nation and what he would like to change about it. And that's it's not dissimilar messaging from what we heard from a lot of Republicans in the midterm elections about, look, we're under a Democratic presidency now. We don't like what we see. Let's take Congress back. Let's try to change things at different levels of government. And so I think in, in part of that, what you're hearing from Donald Trump is, I don't like what I see either. I yes, I, I didn't like the last election. You know, we can talk about that in a different part of the conversation. But what I'm angry about now is what I see coming out of the White House under the Biden administration. And I'm here as an alternative to that. All right. Thank you. Uh, May Kennard uh, covers national politics for the Associated Press and uh, had attended Mr. Trump's campaign event in South Carolina. You're listening to KNX In-Depth with Rob Archer. I'm Charles Feldman. We have talked about the COVID pandemic and its impacts when it comes to school closures and learning loss. New analysis led by a researcher in Paris 
determined the kids experience learning deficits all over the world amount to about one third of a school year's worth of knowledge and skills. Well, here to uh, help explain the pandemic's impact on learning is Peter Dufresne, chief academic officer at Nova Academy which is an online academy that helps students get into college. Peter, thanks for being with us. Thank you for having me, gentlemen. So how bad is it? It's it's bad. Um, you know, students who have gone through the pandemic are uh, anywhere between the New York Times report would say a, a third of a year. The Hetchinger report would say a half a year. There's significant learning loss, and and it's compounded by sort of the same old problem in education, which is low-income areas are affected even worse. So long-term, uh, what kind of effects are we talking about here, like down the road as, as these kids grow up and go out and get jobs? You know, I mean, I, this is probably the subject of a dissertation, gentlemen, but I, I, I feel like I should say that the problem is in how education warehouses children, how we catalog them, uh, meaning we all went to school. We all showed up in September. We stayed there for nine months. And if all went well, at the end of those nine months, you got to go to the next grade. So our students are definitely behind, but they're behind in relation to each other. And so I think this is an opportunity for some well-intended, fearless politician to to change the way that we sort of label students in education. Uh, Standards-based education, where we look at skills and, and content and give the students time to reach those those benchmarks with, with certain support is probably the way to go. Now, the likelihood is that that won't happen. So to answer your question, there's going to be a, a skills gap in this generation of students as they matriculate through school and out into the workforce. Yeah, I was going to say, where do you find a well-intentioned, fearless politician? <laughs> well, I promise you, once I find one, I will call your show immediately. Thank That's you. That. We, we appreciate that. But so, <laughs> so, so we really are. I, I know that people have tossed around this phrase, you know, lost generation, and it sounds very melodramatic. But is it true I don't think it's true. And, and, you know, students are resilient. Children are resilient. Adults are resilient. They will overcome. They will adapt. Uh, what I would love to see is from a policy standpoint is, you know, in a federal budget of trillions of dollars that we can't find some additional funding to shore up these gaps, extend the school year, perhaps no one wants to go to summer school, but but there are different ways in which we can ameliorate some of these gaps and, and address these issues. Uh, I, I just feel like the solution is there. But, you know, people will adapt. And as they go through, there'll just be more remedial courses in college to shore up those gaps. There'll be more vocational programs to to help students pick up the, the gaps where they left off. I'd like to see a, a real formal national approach to this this national pandemic, international pandemic, but I, I haven't heard a lot about that uh, yet. Uh, what about the effect of teachers uh, going up to the front of the class? Um, we need better teachers to help kids overcome this gap, but to get better teachers, we need better pay for teachers so we can get better ones in there. Uh, is that part of the solution, do you think? 
Oh, there's no doubt about it. If we want to, you know, you look at Finland. Finland has the highest literacy rates in the world. Their teachers are paid uh, near the, the the top third of the pay scale in that country. I was a teacher. I'm married to a teacher. I think teaching is the, the noblest thing you could probably do with your life. Um, and and the way that they are treated um, in this country is is very unfortunate. I think, again, this is a massive opportunity for some, again, some well-intentioned, you know, politician to, to set up a funding bill that really sets things right, shores up the gaps in education, closes some of those loopholes. Um, yeah, and, but, but, and, but, but let me, let me, let me uh, mention something here, because I agree with what you said about teaching being uh, among the most noblest of professions. And that al- always makes me wonder why in this country... We don't reward uh, teachers uh, monetarily, which is how people are rewarded under our system, uh, with what they deserve. Is it that we don't, as a country, really want really good teachers because maybe we really don't want to have too many smart people? Is that it? Boy, I, I, I feel like you have been in rooms where I have been I have been speaking before. Uh, I. I'm not. I'm never quite sure as a lifelong educator that that my government is interested in an educated populace. Otherwise, why wouldn't our federal policies? Why wouldn't our state, local, and national policies align with wanting an educated populace? I I I, I could go on about this for hours, but but just take a look. For example, to your point about how we fund college education. College has outstripped the pace of inflation since 1985 by something like 500 or 600 percent. That's not in anyone's interest. That's not in the interest of having an educated populace. Uh, it's an unfortunate reality where we live that our policies don't match what we think our goals are, which is an educated populace. All right. Thank you so much, uh, Peter Dufresne, Chief Academic Officer at Nova Academy. That's an online academy that helps students get into college. Well, the end of an era approaching tomorrow in the world of flying and aviation. The last uh, Boeing 747 commercial jumbo jet will be delivered to Atlas Air to be used as a freighter. And by the way, if you're wondering, that is the uh, jet that's got the hump in the front that has an upper deck. And it's fluid. it flew its first passengers back in 1970, and it changed air travel forever. Shay Oakley is a commercial aviation historian. Uh, Shay, thank you for joining us. Uh, explain to us why, why the 747 Jumbo Jet was such a big deal. Well, it was literally a big deal. Uh, this was an airplane that was two and a half times the size of its immediate predecessor, which would have been the Boeing 707 in 1970. Uh, It was the first jumbo jet. It was the first wide-body aircraft. Um, Just to put it in perspective, that earlier Boeing 707, its maximum takeoff weight was under 250,000 pounds. The very first 747s could take off uh, at three-quarters of a million pounds. And uh, the difference in passengers were 150 on a 707 versus 400 or so on a 747. And that so and and it and it was changer. right and and it was that that really dramatic increase right in passenger load, uh, economy of scale really, that yes. revolution revolutionized uh, air travel did it not and and the the types of people who could afford to fly. 
What it did was in one fell swoop, it lowered seat mile costs radically. A seat mile cost is the cost of carrying one passenger one mile. And uh, because of the number of passengers and the greater efficiency of the airplane versus its predecessors, it allowed what's been called the age of mass air travel to begin. And this was particularly true, not, not so much domestically, but on the international routes. For instance, if you were flying from the United States to Europe, uh, there was a decrease in fares uh, in the early 70s as the 747 uh, entered the fleet of many airlines. And uh, it, was a, it was a plane that throughout its whole history, as they continued to increase its efficiency, uh, continued to allow and sort of lead the way to lower airfares through economies of scale, as you mentioned. Why is the era of the 747 jumbo jet ending? Is it just the march of technology? It is. Uh, the bottom line is that uh, really the, the 747 is being replaced uh, by another Boeing airplane, the Triple uh, Seven, which can carry 400. The latest model can carry 426 people, but it can do it on two engines, not four. And that's the the, uh, the Achilles heel in the 21st century for the 747 is that you now have twin-engine aircraft coming out, which are more efficient because you're burning less fuel for two engines than four, uh, but can carry the same load, the same distance as the uh, 747 could. You know, I know when there was this shift to twin-engine uh, aircraft, a lot of pilots at the time were very uh, leery about that, especially for transoceanic routes. They didn't really like the idea of only having two engines because they felt if one went out and they were in the middle of nowhere, even though the plane is certified to fly in 50%, it still only leaves one engine. Uh, does that uh, concern still exist? You know, I would have said no, but just recently online I was talking with an airline captain who uh, expressed his uh, his pleasure with the fact that uh, twin engine extended over overseas operations were uh, were something that have been that's been going on, but it's been going on since the mid 1980s. It was pioneered with uh, a large twin called the Boeing 767, and uh, it's proven to be just as safe. Uh, you know, if you, we've had an extremely safe period in air transportation, particularly in the United States in the last 20 years. And that's with twin jets increasingly becoming the uh, the standard. I, I have no problem flying the ocean in the twin jet. I have more than once. With the uh, Boeing 747 Jumbo jets that are still in service, how long until we see the last one retired? Oh, I would say quite some time. Uh, the passenger version of the last 747 model, which was the 747-8, uh, is still being flown by Lufthansa, Korean Air, and Air China, and they're relatively recent-built airplanes. So you'll probably see them carrying passengers for another decade or so. And then the freighters, uh, far more of the 747-8s were, were built as freighters, and there's still quite a few 747 earlier, the Dash 400 version flying as freighters. They'll be flying, I don't know, 20, 30 years in, in the future. I mean, this is an airplane that first flew in 1968, and but, they're but, only ending production now. But why was that plane? I mean, we've talked about the economy of scale and how it, it brought prices down. But there's something very, uh, and for lack of a better word, romantic about that aircraft. Why? What is it? 
Well, it's particularly because of when, well, when the airplane was first introduced in the early 70s, it was uh, a period of time when there wasn't the kind of high-density seating traffic was was uh, depressed, actually, when the airplane was, was first brought out. And, uh, you know, it was designed when uh, traffic was booming in the 60s. It came out in the early 70s. And traffic wasn't doing well. So the airlines had lounges in the airplane, even for coach passengers. They were literally pulling seats out of the airplanes and putting things like piano bars in them. And during that period, you know, it was truly luxurious, even in coach, to fly on a 747. And then there's the iconic hump with the spiral staircase upstairs, which initially also was a first-class lounge on the upper deck. it was such a quantum leap, and it was so unique and so luxurious initially that it, it's become an iconic airplane. I would say it's one of the 10 most significant aircraft ever designed since the Wright brothers. All right. Thank you, uh, Shay Oakley, a commercial uh, aviation historian, for uh, joining us today. You know, uh, Charles, I'm kind of a... I don't fly a lot, but I do fly some. And when I fly, I'm kind of a nerd. I like to know what kind of aircraft mm-hmm. I'm getting. And I always ask, which is this? And most often, I'm getting on an Airbus, not yeah. a Boeing. Yeah. You know, yeah, uh, years ago, I had the opportunity because, as you know, I, I, I do fly airplanes. And, and a few years ago, United, I was doing a story, you uh, invited me to their training center in Denver. And I took uh, simulator training on 747s for a few days. And uh, it was really great. To, it was like flying a golf cart. Very easy to fly. Uh, did you crash it? No, but simu- no, but but it was par for the course. <laughs> I sorry. think sorry. that will do it for KNX Absolutely. It should. It should do it. And, and for some reason, we will be back tomorrow.